0: Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Bye, 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 where we explore the intersectionalities of being bicultural, bisexual, and biracial. I'm your host Kendra Snow, and today I have something special for you all. I am going to be talking about something that I probably would never talk about unless I was able to do it in the way I wanted to talk about, and it is the mark of the beast. Now, I love how sensational these conversations can get when we get into the fanaticism of prophecy, but I'm doing a class on Bible prophetic teaching, and I wanted to really interpret and look at the text in a way that I would find relevant, so I'm excited to get into this. This month, it's October, it's Domestic Violence Awareness Month. So I think this piece really is going to speak to the times. Uh, Before we get into that, for those of you who would like to become a Patreon subscriber, you will get an additional episode um, every month. Right now, I'm going to be doing bi-monthly instead of weekly. I just don't have the schedule for that at the moment. Uh, Maybe sometime in the future, but, you know, I'm going to continue posting as regularly as I can. So... This week on Patreon, I'm going to be exploring a particular art piece that I find absolutely fascinating. And it's a piece by Marina Abramovich called Rhythm Zero. And this is so fascinating. I want to tell you a little bit about this art piece because I have a lot to say and a lot to talk about on the podcast, on the Patreon episode this week. But it was a piece in 1974. And at this time, performance art was becoming on the rise, but a lot of people had criticisms of it because they found it too aggressive or sensationalist, sometimes masochistic. And so Abramovich did something unique. She did a six hour performance where she stood completely submissive for six hours. This is from 8 p.m. until 2 a.m. And she presented a table. And on this table, there was various objects, Objects for pleasure, as well as objects for pain, and objects that can bring you death. So she had things like a rose, a feather, grapes, honey. She also had a whip, a scalpel, a gun, and a bullet. And it's interesting because in the beginning of the performance, people were, you know, doing silly things, they were raising her arms in the air, they twirled her around, but then it became a lot more aggressive. So at some point, they began cutting off her clothes. She was sexually assaulted multiple times. She had cuts all over her body. People began putting the thorns from the roses into her stomach. And one person even put the gun to her head and was playing with her hand to pull the trigger. So Marina had signed this waiver where she was like, anything that happens in the six hours is completely, I'm liable for, right? And I'm completely at the mercy of the audience. And there was a fight that broke out. And people who were like, hey, this is going too far. And so it was really interesting because it was a study in the audience. And what people would do when you completely allow them to objectify you. The performance ended and when the six hours were up, she got up, became a real person and began walking towards the audience. And as she was walking towards the audience, scarred, covered in blood and tears in her eyes, the audience ran away from her like they could not be confronted with the actions that they had just done to her in the last six hours. They ran in terror. There's so many parallels, I think, to Jesus and the crucifixion being the ultimate performance art, right? If we want to think about Jesus in that way, he would—he took on, <laughs> it's so fascinating, he took on this ultimate submissive posture and said, I will allow the audience to do to me whatever comes to them. And what we see with Marina Abramovich is that if you let them, there are some people who will divulge into destruction, and they will even kill you. And we see that also with Jesus. The crucifixion is a tale of what is in our own hearts. It's a revelation of what exists inside of us. And I think it's so fascinating because when Marina, you know, came back to life, it was no longer a performance, the six hours were up, people were terrified that they had to be confronted with their actions. And I think when we talk about things like the second coming or we talk about the resurrection, I mean, this is the kind of perspective that we can come at it from, you know, what is it like when people are faced with the consequences of the persons and the people that they've injured? It's a fascinating revelation, right? So, We're going to be talking about this on the Patreon page because there's so much to talk about here. It's fascinating and I love this art piece. Um, But today we're going to be talking about The Mark of the Beast. So again, it's one of those sermons that I'm going to read. I will try and be as animated as possible. I am looking at this from a perspective that I haven't heard it talked about before, but I'm excited to get into this. Revelation 13:15 through 17 gives a description of the beast saying, He causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand or on their foreheads, and that no one may buy or sell except one who has the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. So I recently moved to a city that has blue laws in place. This is particularly interesting to me because blue laws show the history of a city and the history of its values. It's also something I've often heard talked about in sermons regarding future Sunday laws. For those of you who might be unfamiliar with what a blue law is, it's a law that was created back in colonial times, but still stands today, although it's not enforced. The fear surrounding blue laws is that the laws that prohibited work on Sunday back in the early 1900s will be reinforced at the end of time since they're still technically a law and people who want to worship on other days of the week on Saturday will also not be allowed to. While on the city tour a few weeks ago, the tour guide shared with us some of the more unknown blue laws that are still in the books today. Some of these I thought would be quite interesting if they were brought back. So one Duels can be carried out to the death on Sunday, as long as the governor is present. No work on Sunday, but duels to the death, 100% okay. Um, It's illegal to take a lion to the movies. It's illegal to play the fiddle. I'm not sure where this came from. I'm assuming that maybe it had to do with some type of systematic attempt to remove the homeless and other beggars from the city. But either way, I love it when people play music out on the street. But it's illegal in the city. It is illegal to bathe unless your doctor gives you a prescription. But it's also illegal not to bathe before going to bed. So it's a bit of a catch-22 here. Um, Roosters may not go into bakeries. For your information, that's that's a law. And it is illegal to eat peanuts in church. So they were very... Hypercautious cautious with peanut allergies, and uh, illegal. Do not eat them in church. Probably a good thing for today, too. Aside from these quirky laws, we learned about the history of the city and how it treated convicted criminals. So during revolutionary times, when America was struggling for independence from England, there was a particular pardon called the benefit of clergy, which allowed members of the church to be tried by their parish rather than by the state, and thus escape the death penalty. In exchange, they would receive a branding on their thumbs. And this branding included a T for theft, an F for felony, or an M for murder. This is a one-time branding. So if you were convicted again, they would receive the full penalty for their crime. This branding often made a person unemployable. And it turned them into kind of this homeless wanderer, often dependent upon the kindness of family and friends for food and shelter, or sometimes working really laborious jobs that nobody else wanted. So to be branded with this mark ensured that you lived a pretty hard life. And your sin, your crime was pretty publicly known. This branding of criminals from the old reminded me of a similar story in the Bible, where God branded a murderer rather than give him the death penalty. This branding sentenced this murderer, the first murderer, to a life of wandering and reflection. This is the branding of the Mark of Cain. The Mark of the Beast is often spoken of as this terrifying branding that will be forced upon the faithful if they're not so very careful. Maybe it's an implanted chip or a change made to our DNA through a vaccine. But whatever it is, it's always this external force that we must be vigilant to guard against. It's a principle in exegesis to to return to the first mentions, in order to gather more insight on how a mysterious term might be used in different parts of scripture. The first mention of a mark is the mark given to Cain. It was not a mark that he received because he lacked discernment or did not watch carefully what was happening in the world around him. It was a revelatory mark, a mark that revealed a hidden secret, his very real guilt, the guilt of bloodshed. When I think about the mark of Cain, I see it as the mark of violence. And October is the Domestic Violence Awareness Month, and I thought it would be appropriate for us to discuss how violence shows up in prophecy. The mark of the beast is not something external that is placed upon the innocent, thus turning them evil, right? It is a mark that reveals what is already in the heart. And as wide as the gap is between Cain and Abel, there is a crying contrast between those who earn the mark of Cain and the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. In contrast to those who bear the mark, Revelation goes on to describe another kind of people, saying, Then I saw the Lamb, standing on Mount Zion, and with him were 144,000, who had his name and his Father's name written on their foreheads. Jesus is spoken of in contrast to the beast as a lamb. His followers bear his mark kind of like what we talked about earlier, maybe the marks of Marina Abramovich, but it's the mark of Abel, the mark of being slain, the mark of those victimized by the canes of this world. Jesus in so many ways is our example, a model after whom we pattern our lives. This piece of performance art that he has provided for us is to cause us reflection and imitation. But Jesus is more than that. He's also a savior, but a savior especially from ourselves. David Buss, a professor of psychology at the University of Texas, Austin, he surveyed 5,000 people for his book, The Murderer Next Door, Why the Mind is Designed to Kill. And he found that 91% of men and 84% of women had thought about killing someone, and often with very specific hypothetical victims and methods in mind. So while we might think that murderers are either pathological misfits or hardened criminals, as author David Buss highlights, the vast majority of murderers are committed by people who, until the day they kill, seem perfectly normal. Now, this book goes on to highlight the ways our brains have been wired to deal with perceived danger that at times our brains misfire. The rage we experience in a traffic jam or when someone says something cruel and injurious to our ego and we go red with rage. All of this is a misfire since there's no real existential threat, right? There's no kill or be killed scenario. And yet, violence is incredibly accessible for all of us. As October is Domestic Violence Awareness Month, I just want to give you a few statistics because domestic violence statistics since the pandemic have risen. Families have been under incredible amounts of stress, which I'm sure all of you can relate to since the pandemic, right? Financial stress, the loss of family members, maybe one or both providers have been fired from work. So there's a lot to be stressed and a lot to be angry about. Mallory Littlejohn, legal director for the Chicago Alliance Against Sexual Exploitation, paints this picture. She says, it's a really horrible situation. Imagine needing to wake up in the morning, go to work, take care of your kids, but you can't send your kids away because they're homeschooling. And you're not leaving for work, you're working from home. And so is your abuser. Data obtained from the Illinois Domestic Violence Hotline received 30,000 calls for help in 2020. That's a 16% increase from the previous year, and at its busiest, the hotline received almost 150 calls in one day. This is a single number, in a single state. 30,000 calls that year. Multiply that by 10. Multiply that by 50 states. Violence is its own epidemic, and it's rising... Jesus is called Emmanuel, God with us. The book of Revelation ends with the declaration, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Jesus is the ultimate pattern of what it means to dwell well with other people. He has lived with contentious, judgmental, even violent domestic partners. This is not a sermon about remaining in violent and dangerous situations. This is about how do we not become the monster we seek to destroy? As a survivor of domestic violence myself, I know all too well the difficulties of leaving, the barriers to making it to safety, The religious beliefs sometimes and impediments that keep a person in a dangerous relationship, along with the rage that happens in the aftermath of violation. Looking to Jesus as my model, what do I see? I see how an all-powerful God chooses to lay down all of the ways that he could overpower us and force us to conform. The omniscient God. The one who knows our every thought and our every misdeed never takes the opportunity to humiliate another person by revealing intimate secrets about their life. He was wise as a serpent, gentle as a dove, the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Now, some of you do not have domestic partners or roommates, and so there are certain challenges that are inherent in Dwelling with someone that you may not be faced with in your everyday life. The ebbs and flows of human behavior. The morose and dark moods that your partner might experience. Mental illness and physical health challenges. Frustration from work seeping into your home life. Dysfunctional styles of communication and family systems that have carried over from both of your families of origin. Maybe it's a triggering statement of judgment said from an unmindful spouse All of these things can make for volatile eruptions that, no matter how much you have prepared in the past, will catch you off guard and often trigger a trauma response. Not all violence is physical, right? When we feel powerless and hurt, the temptation is to hit people. And sometimes we don't hit them with physical objects. But we do hit them with any object that we can get our hands on. We use our words, right? You, I don't know, X, Y, and Z, right? We withhold affection, hitting them with a loss of love. We use the Bible, God said. The mark of the beast is not a mystical branding from the enemy that sneaks up on us unaware. The mark of the beast is the work of a lifetime. A lifetime of not restraining unkind words, not restraining ourselves from the opportunity to use excessive force, whether that's physical force, the force of our words, or the force of our Bible knowledge. Some say the Mark of the Beast is the Sunday Law. I want to point to you that the Mark of the Beast, however it shows up, is the abuse of power. It is bending the will of those less powerful than you through coercion. It is the employer bending the will of their employee because of their economic vulnerability. It is the police officer using excessive force because he can and nobody is holding him accountable. It is the spouse who uses their tone and words and lack of affection to bend the will of the one they call beloved. It is even a denominational president using the power of influence to target and abuse those who are already marginalized among us. The mark of the beast is the antithesis to the gentleness of the lamb. Jesus, wise as a serpent, gentle as a dove, the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. The classic Disney tale Beauty and the Beast provides commentary on what makes us truly human and what makes us a monster. You have the handsome alpha male Gaston versus the pained introverted beast. One looks like a human, but acts like an animal. One looks like an animal, but acts with humanity. We see beast-like creatures depicted in Revelation and Daniel. And these beasts represent people and institutions that have lost their humanity. Revelation 13, for example, provides some descriptions. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten hordes and seven heads. It was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's. Its mouth was like a lion's mouth. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. that had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. It causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or on the forehead, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark that is the name of the beast or the number of its name. An interesting descriptor of this beast, this institution, this system that has lost its humanity, says it causes all the rich and the poor, the free and the slave, to be marked and that no one can buy or sell unless he has this mark. I posed you a very controversial question. Do we already bear this mark? Now hear me out. We often think of receiving the mark of the beast as some future event we have to avoid. But what about our accountability to nonviolence in the here and the now? What about our collective culpability not just to individual acts of violence, but our participation in systematic acts of violence. A few years back when I was studying my undergraduate degree in international development, I spent a lot of time examining carbon footprints, the cost of sustaining human life, how food subsidies affect and often cripple foreign markets, how big companies like Nike are essentially run on slave labor, how oil is a motivator for war, how our fuel industries are raping the earth and destroying natural habitats, how the computer chips and the silicone mined for our iPhones and computers are mined by children in poverty-stricken providences of Africa. And the thought dawned on me one day. I feel like there's no place I can go to escape the guilt of participating in our current technological and industrial age. The clothes I buy, the computers I use, my phone, my food, I would completely have to live off-grid and set myself back to the 1800s to really be free of the blood guilt that I have on my hands by participating in the questionable purchases of this economy. I'm not trying to be an alarmist, but I am trying to be aware. There is a movement to more sustainable, fair trade economies, but... That is not by and large the bulk of our industry. The computers on which we are having this conversation, the gas we put in our cars, the clothes we buy from cheap overseas labor is not something I often question. Was the person who made this shirt given a livable wage? These are questions I am asking and challenging myself to ask. Because I'm not only responsible to make personal, individual commitments to nonviolence, but I am also culpable for the systematic violence that I participate in. So I ask again, whose hands among us are clean? To buy or sell to participate in our current economy in many ways is a must. I think Paul sums this up nicely when he implores upon his hearers saying, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. The collective guilt that we all bear, in many ways means that we're all on equal footing, all equally sinners, all cleansed by one agent. The comparison between this person and that person, their sin and mine, is foolish. We all stand on equal footing before the cross, wise as a serpent, gentle as a dove the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. I want to invite you to pause for a moment and think about these comparisons we often make between the lives of ourselves and the other, the people we often categorize in our mind as villains, the divides we've created between the quote sinner and ourselves, the caricatures we have made of what the mark of the beast looks like. We have a commitment to nonviolence, not only in our personal lives and on an individual level, but also on a communal level. When it comes to our communal culpability and guilt, we can do what we can and educate ourselves in how to participate in a more just economy, to buy fair trade, to inquire about the companies that we invest in and the establishments where we buy at. There is only so much within our power that we can do. But if every person does a little and sees the value of their contribution, then they can turn little into much. Like the widow's mite, it can inspire small offerings to God for many people that eventually make up great wealth in his storehouse. As far as our personal commitment to nonviolence, we must seek the help we need in order to keep our hands to ourselves. Maybe that's going to therapy, but the temptation to hit others with our words, with our righteousness, with our thus saith the Lord's. And we need to learn what it is to walk with mercy and to love justice. In honor of Domestic Violence Month, I'm going to speak of a mark that is particularly accessible to the communities of faith, and often something not talked about. And this is the mark of religious abuse. God said, is the ultimate source of religious power. The phrase the Bible says can be used as bluntly as a fist. It is the ultimate trump card and a coercive way to impress upon vulnerable minds, your particular points. God said when God hath not said, or God did not mean it to be used in that way is the ultimate meaning of using the Lord's name in vain. So, who are the vulnerable among us? Those we are most often tempted to abuse using religious language. Maybe it's those who wear their brokenness more openly. These are the ones we can easily label as, quote, living immoral lives. We can easily pick them up from the herd and display them as unworthy wearers of Christ's name. Maybe it's those darn feminists, right, who keep asking for equality when the Bible so clearly states, quote, unquote, that subordination of women in religious offices and in the home is pleasing to God, right? There's a clear text for that. I can tell you, as one who has experienced religious abuse from both the community and from individuals, this kind of Bible thumping, while you might feel that you're on the war path for Jesus, it is the most damaging behavior, and I doubt not that those who use the Bible in this way are those of whom Jesus spoke, saying, There will come a time when they will put you out of the synagogue. In fact, the time is coming when anyone who kills you will think they are offering a service to God. People who use the Bible and religion to persecute vulnerable people are delusional, according to this verse, right? Maybe it's the LGBTQ community, right? They're an easy target. There's some verses in Leviticus and Romans we can throw at them. The people who make up 7% of the population but are 40% of the homeless youth, they're the ones we should target, right? The ones who are already four times more likely to commit suicide, these are the ones we should beat up with our theology. These are examples of very real ways that we can religiously abuse other communities and we use the Bible to do it. The mark of the beast is wholly within our power to refrain from receiving. So what do we have to do? One, we must keep the commitment to keep our hands unstained from blood, abuse, and violence. And maybe we need particular help. Yes, pray. Yes, place yourself at the mercy of God and ask for supernatural help. But also ask for natural help. Go to therapy. Get into counseling. Begin to find ways to improve yourself if this is something that you struggle with. We must watch our words and do our part to restrain the unkindness that comes oh too naturally for us. There is a pattern that has been given us to follow and by God, let us be saved by him. Not from all of these other villains that we've created in our mind, but from ourselves. That we too Might become wise as serpents, gentle as doves, like the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. As someone who knows for a certain and for a fact that there are women, children, even men within churches who are right now experiencing abuse, emotional abuse, physical abuse, religious abuse. And for those of you who are victims of domestic violence, I want to give you a few resources where you can go to next to begin moving yourself into the path of safety. So there's a ton of resources online. One is the National Domestic Violence Hotline, and it is 1-800-799-SAFE. That's 1-800-799-SAFE. You can also go to their website, thehotline.org. .org to find out more information. But one thing that will also help is with diagnostics. So I think some of the most difficult parts of being in an abusive relationship or an abusive situation is the question, am I in an abusive situation? Well, if you're asking yourself that question, that might already be the first clue. Right, But if you're still questioning and you're not sure, these are people who can help give you better definitions of what abuse is and maybe help run a diagnostic of your situation, how dangerous it is, and what steps you might need to take to move towards safety. There's a really interesting book by Lundy Bancroft. Um, he worked with abusers in recovery, and it's called Why Does He Do That? Now, it's a gendered title but it doesn't necessarily have to have gendered applications, but it's looking into the minds of the men that he had worked with for many years um, in these kind of, you know, state mandated abuse recovery programs and really got into the psychology behind abusers. And so he provides a really realistic look at what it takes to really recover from abuse and the work that needs to be taken. So somebody says, I'm sorry, I'm back you know, that's really not enough, right? People can feel sorry and not change. He gives a realistic timeline of things to look for. And it's a long timeline. It's like two years minimum, right? Uh, Where people are doing the work and making progress, that these things begin to change. And for me, this was a big help because it gave me indicators to say, okay, this is a long process. And this person has to be committed to the process. They're not committed to the process. It's very likely I'm not going to see any results. And when you start seeing the non-committalness of this person to, to transformation, then you realize, okay, I can't stick around or even the sorry's don't really matter because they're not willing to put in the work behind it to get to where they need to go. So for me, it was a very important diagnostic as well for me. These are just a few resources, your local and national domestic violence hotlines are really great resources and they can provide you with more education. So that's the end of the talk on uh, the Mark of the Beast, the Mark of Cain, tying it in with October being Domestic Violence Awareness Month. Uh, For those of you who would like to uh, support me on Patreon for as little as $5 a month, you can do so and you will also get an extra episode every time a podcast drops Thank you so much for joining me today. I'm your host, Kendra Arsenal, and I will see you in about two weeks.